The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And today we're so lucky to have a returning guest, my friend, Dr. Brian Udell, the autism doctor. Yes, you can find him at theautismdoctor.com. He's controversial. We don't always agree, but he's in the front lines and he's devoting his life to this. And so without further ado, Dr. Brian Udell, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me again, Hacky. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. Why don't you do an introduction of yourself that's better than the one I just did? Well, I'm a pediatrician for 45 years, and I've always been interested in uh, epidemics and in younger children um, where there isn't placebo effect. That's the beauty of taking care of premature babies and babies and toddlers. You can't tell a baby that they're going to talk or they're going to walk. The, the, what you do results in improvement. And that, I like that that combination. And as far as, as epidemics go, I was involved in the autism. I'm sorry, I was involved in the uh, drug and alcohol baby epidemic in the 1970s and 80s uh, as a neonatologist. And I saw those children until they were three years old at the follow-up clinics. And then I was involved mostly with AIDS babies um, in the 80s and 90s. And if they survived, I saw those children in the follow-up clinics. Um, and then uh, I, all those very rough pregnancies, very difficult uh, uh, deliveries and, and rough first years, I saw those children for the city until they were three years old. And my first case of autism was in 1975, so I would have recognized it. And these children who had very rough uh, starts didn't have autism. They had maybe a lot of ADHD, especially the drug and alcohol babies, um, but or small size if they were drug, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, ADHD. But autism didn't appear on my radar until 2009 when I started the autism clinic here down in Broward County. And we were seeing approximately five children a week getting evaluated for that. And now in the clinic that I do in Davie uh, near Nova University, we're seeing a approximately 15 children a day, and there's a waiting list of, of six months or more, you know, to see doctors like me. Tell us, from, from your point of view, the biggest misconceptions about autism that are out there now. Well, I think the first misconception that I, w I always want to get a chance to say is, didn't you make the wrong diagnosis? We don't really have more autism. They just used to be called retarded. I, that one really gets me because I take it personally. I took care of the sickest babies on the planet for 25 years in the last century. So I got all those babies that I called mentally retarded. That's not the name now. It's a, a you know, challenged IQ. Uh, but, but in those days, it was called mental retarded retardation and cerebral palsy. And didn't I really just misdiagnose it and now they would be called autism. And my point about that is the incidence of mental retardation 30 years ago was one in 2000. So if even if I got every single child wrong and I called them mentally retarded or developmentally challenged um, and I was wrong about every single one of them, they really had autism. How did it go from one in 2000 to one in 59 kids, 69 kids, 2% 
percent of boys. Eighty thousand children will be born this year who will eventually get a diagnosis of some kind of developmental delay, including autism. I didn't get it wrong. I didn't miss it. We've got an epidemic happening. It's rolling over us, and I believe that the uh, pediatricians of today, the neurologists of today, are more worried about the epidemics of the last century than they are of the epidemic of this century. Why don't you say what you really feel? (laughs) Um, How have things changed from your point of view? Because everything is different now, okay? And the biggest factors you see, you just want to touch on a couple of them that have changed because you have a 40-year stretch. Yeah, it's actually 45. And the biggest thing I see that's different is antibiotics. I always want to point that out. There's antibiotics. Every time a kid sneezes, they get a course of antibiotics. There's antibiotics given so you won't get a bacterial infection, which is bizarre because if you give antibiotics prophylactically, you're going to get a resistant bacterial infection. Um, Every time you sneeze and it's a virus, viruses aren't killed by antibiotics. In the last century, if I had a child under the age of three, maybe one or two times that required antibiotics, that was unusual. In this century, children, a, a mother will tell me, well, he's only been on antibiotics five or six times, okay? And that is a huge change. What we're eating is a huge change. We have antibiotics and all the food that we're eating. We have antibiotics in the animals and, and they don't necessarily tell the truth that there's these organic foods don't have antibiotics in them. That, you know, so the com- that is the number one thing I see uh, as different for children in this century than the last century, the way uh, uh, overuse of antibiotics. And the second thing um, is positioning of children. I said this a lot, that in 1990, we used to put children on, the, before 1990, we put children on the their front for three million, for 300,000 years or however long man's been around, uh, we put children on the front when they went to sleep. And it was discovered, rightly so, in the 1990s, that if you put the child on their back, they would have less incidence of SIDS, which is true. The incidence of SIDS has gone way, way down, like 100 times since we've done that. But the price we've paid is reflux. And if you reflux, especially when you reflux into your, if you reflux here, the doctors start giving Nexium and Prilosec and Prevacid, which I never was able to give in the last century. Every single premature baby has reflux. If you're taking care of premature babies, you're taking care of reflux. And I didn't have Prilosec and I didn't have autism. Okay, so that's, and so now they just give Nexium. I just give Nexium. Where, where's a study on Nexium given to babies? And what's the workup that you're doing? Premature babies get reflux. Why are term babies getting reflux? So that's the second thing. So both the reflux and the treatment of the reflux and the, and, and the extension of the reflux, if you're not just refluxing up here, you're refluxing into your ears. So the incredible increase in number of otitis medias and treatment of otitis media and and tubes that they need, tympanostomy tubes to to cure the recurrent otitis media. Um, I would say those are the top two things that I see as the the difference in this century. And the third thing would be um, the uh, 85,000 or more chemicals in the air, food, and water that weren't there when we were kids. So susceptible individuals, why are boys more susceptible than girls? I don't know, but in the newborn intensive care unit, we'd much rather take care of a girl. They just were stronger. I guess that's why they can have kids, um, that that girls are stronger. And so boys are, are just being a boy is susceptible. 
having minor genetic problems that wouldn't have shown up in the last century are showing up now because we can't detoxify all the chemicals that are even in the water. There's Prozac levels. Who said that's okay? How did we evolve, you know, with this going on while you're a fetus? Um, so those are the top three things on my list. You know, this is kind of a segue to the gut, the whole gut brain, the whole gut brain. Why don't you give us your thoughts on that? You know, we've been so lucky here at Different Brains to have met, uh, you know, Derek McFabe up in Canada, who's certainly one of the pioneers in this area and everything. But just the way of looking at the connection as you have from the gut to the brain and vice versa. Well, you know, the first thing um, that the, the, uh, that comes to mind is the fact that uh, his name was Dr. Gershon and he was at Columbia University in 1990 who first described the gut-brain interaction. So 1990 is 29 years ago and, and doctors will talk about that today like it's religion. Do you believe in the gut-brain connection? Do you believe in it? I mean how many years does something have to be around and it, and it constantly gets the, the, the follow-up studies constantly show that this is true. So how can we have nearly 30 years of follow-up studies to show that there are more there are more uh, neural cells in your gut than in your brain okay that what affects your gut does affect your brain why do we say butterflies in your stomach why do we use you don't have butterflies in your stomach just about every analogy that you use for anxiety you'll be using your stomach okay and so that that and so it's it's not just coincidental and the second thing is that you know, we have changed the biome. We have changed what's growing in us. And so when one wants to look at, well, what's the reason for the increase in the developmental problems? It's interesting. If you tell somebody there's more asthma in the world, every, oh, yeah, there's more asthma in the world. It's, it's a poison world. There's more thyroid in the world. Oh, yeah, there's more thyroid. I understand. There's more certain cancers in the world. You say there's more autism in the world and that there's an autoimmune or a gut relation to that because we have poisons. Or I don't know what you're talking about. It couldn't affect those organs. It could only affect affect any other organ but your gut or your brain. And, and mostly for me, 60% uh, of my babies, of my patients, have a, a, a GI abnormality in some way. Most people don't know that in the first series of autistic children um, from uh, Dr. Connor, Leo Connor, in, 19, uh, in 1930, he reported to, uh, in 1939 and 1940, 11 children that had autism. And uh, eight of those 11 children, because he described each case in detail, and eight of those 11 children had a, gastro a gastrointestinal problem. They either had a lot of diarrhea or vomiting or feeding problems. Eight of 11. Only six of 11 had what somebody might call a refrigerator mom. The mom wasn't interested yeah. in the kid. So I always think that if Dr. Connor was a gastroenterologist rather than a, a true Freudian psychiatrist, which he was from Austria, that it wouldn't have been found in the diagnostic and statistical manual for psychiatric disorders. It would be found in the pediatric manual as a pediatric disorder or a gastrointestinal disorder. Um, and, and the good news for my patients is that if 60% of them have 
a gastrointestinal uh, uh, thing that I can uh, issue that I can address. Um, that means that a lot of the signs and symptoms that we call autism go away. Aggression in my world, aggression always starts in the gut. Okay, there is no reason for a kid to hit his head. It is absolutely bizarre for a person to hit themselves in the head. It is absolutely impossible to believe when I see a mom from arm from her entire arm with bite marks and punch marks. Okay, this is starting in the gut, and when you uh, recognize that the aggression is a combination of gut dysbiosis, something's going wrong in the gut, and the child's inability to communicate, you get these two things together, okay, and you're going to get disruptive children, and you're going to get behaviors that we call repetitive behaviors, restricted interests, social isolation, and these people want to be anything but socially isolated. They just don't have the skills to do that. So all these kind of symptoms that we call autism can be very much ameliorated by addressing the gut issues. And the most important thing to me is speech, okay? That speech apraxia is interfered with, and, you know, so the mother says, well, she hated, the kid hates the, uh, the speech therapist. Every time the speech therapist comes, they, they're not paying attention. And it's like, the child doesn't know he can talk. And if he, all he's doing is worried about his gut the whole time and he doesn't feel so good and he hasn't taken a poop in three days or he's taken three poops by the time she sees him that day, nobody's in the mood to you know to take tests and to be um, and to be learning things so it actually interfere before I even start to address the signs and symptoms that would be related to communication and speech apraxia or speech delay or recolally or scripting or whatever the speech problem is at the time you have to address the gut issues first so that the child will pay attention and when you stress this in your practice and when you speak and when you everything you're doing it's met with resistance, isn't it? Uh, at best, okay. <laughs> I'm marginalized at best and, you know, derided at worst. Uh, you know, they're just trying to make this up. As You know, I live in the world, I grew up in the world of regular doctors. I'm a regular doc, you know, and I didn't believe in, I might not have believed in any of this 10 years ago when I started seeing more and more children with autism. Oh, it's probably a genetic problem. Well, if it's a genetic problem, where's the genetics to prove it? It's the 21st century. I have neurologists today that still don't do a genetic workup on the kids. Okay, You said it was genetic. You told the parent it was genetic. Why didn't you check the... Well, because she's not going to have any more kids. Or because it really you can't do anything about genetics. Well, wouldn't you want to know why the kids show an autism? I mean, we're, we're marginalized with, with all these uh, thoughts that we have. And so the gut brain can... Oh, they believe in the gut brain. Everything's gluten-free. Everything's casein-free. And of course, you could go overboard. But in my world, okay, when a parent sees that by doing certain diets, okay, that are medically indicated because we do scientific testing to say what diet you're supposed to be on, or we make up whatever nutritional deficiency that they may have, and the child starts talking, that's what I'm talking about. There ain't no placebo effect in that, okay? Now, I say if you go on this diet, okay, and if you would just do the diet for two months, okay, and in three months you see the child eat the wrong thing, you will never give that child that food again and it happens a hundred percent under the age of six years old because the parent starts to believe the grandparent starts to believe that this gut brain connection is a real is a real thing it must be because the child got better they've been doing the same therapy speech therapy for three years the child's now five years old doesn't talk the neurologist says 
well, you got to get more therapy. Well, if you don't talk under the age of six, the different parts of our brain learn speech under six than over six, which is why when people learn a second language, for example, they'll always have an accent unless they practice if they learn the, the language too late. There's a very specific time that our brain is supposed to learn language and it's getting interfered with a lot because of all uh, either infections or autoimmunity um, and 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 again the special thing for me is uh, gastrointestinal and so it's not hard to get people to believe it when it's little kids it's a lot harder when they're older um, and it's very difficult so this is kind of a segue also to what people you might think mistakenly call comorbidities with autism can you expound on that? Right. My, my view is that autism is a number of signs and symptoms that we call autism. It's not a comorbidity, it's the morbidity, okay? In that child who has speech apraxia, it, his, his, his or her uh, 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 autism is being defined by the speech apraxia and it might be defined at another time by their problems with their gut. It might be defined at another time, especially as they get older, by their sensory issues, huge sensory issues, okay? Um, they're very, you know, they have to press on things, they uh, distractibility with sounds or visual sensory things from lights ab above your head. You know, these, the, these are, to me aren't comorbidities. What they represent is communication problems in the central nervous system. They represent functional connections, functional connectivity problems, and that downstream they're being manifest in this way in signs and symptoms we call autism. And I, I think that's a more elegant way to look at the problem as a constellation of, of morbidities, okay, that lead to a downstream diagnosis of autism. Then you've got autism and ADHD and sensory processing disorder and oppositional defiance disorder, okay, and, uh, and sleep problems, okay. It's all the same thing, you know, and, and, and I know this because when you get to therapies that address these connections, they get better. Where do you see the state of uh, medical education and education of our frontline doctors, family practitioners, pediatricians, not to mention us orthopedic surgeons, <laughs> but um, where do you see the state of education for autism? I think that if we're going to wait for randomized controlled prospective double-blind studies to answer um, you know, any therapy that we give, we're going to be waiting a real long time. And that at the present time, it, it, my experience with pediatric residents that I talk to um, is woefully inadequate for this ep epidemic. They don't understand what I'm doing. Again, my, my beef is that in the last medical journal, Journal of American Medical Association Pediatric Review, okay, there were zero articles, okay, zero articles on the epidemic of our time. When I was taking care of premature babies, there'd be three or four articles on respiratory distress syndrome and uh, necrotizing enterocolitis and bleeding in the brain. Every month you'd have two or three articles about one of these things. Where are the, where's the research, okay? And a lot of the research, unfortunately, is going into the magic, okay? The magic, the stem cell transplants, okay, that they're doing at, at, at Duke University or the fecal transplants that they're doing in Arizona. Just let's understand 
why people have autism first before we start looking at what magic's going to make that turn around. And 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 for example, uh, I am disappointed when I read studies about monkeys and mice. They have they can genetically it can be gen genetically engineer monkeys and mice that have repetitive behaviors. They'll run on the track all the time, or they'll have uh, restricted interest and social isolation. These animals are are social animals, and you can genetically engineer animals that are you know have these signs and symptoms that people call autism. And my answer is when the monkey talks, I'll read the study. Monkeys don't talk and we don't understand why monkeys don't talk and we do. So until we understand why monkeys don't talk and we don't do that and we do, that's when I'll, I'll believe it. And so it's not just the teaching that's going on, the research is geared towards the wrong, the, you know, speech apraxia. Nobody talks, oh you know you'll get a kid who, who doesn't speak and he's four years old and he'll be seeing the, a speech therapist and for the first time in like a year, you know your child has speech apraxia, you know. It's like, well, he wants to talk and he can't. I think he does, you know. <laughs> and they, they say it with such authority, like they just told me what part of the brain isn't working. When an old man has a stroke, we know where the problem is. It's in the temporal lobe, you know, and we know exactly what the problem is. We know they need uh, a repetitive therapy to get it back, to get that, that blood flow back to that area. We don't understand anything about speech apraxia and autism, not the least bit. Okay, and that is the that defines the most uh, uh, affected children because if you reach the age of 10, 11, 12, and you're not speaking, your uh, uh, your rage can go real, really high. You know, your inability to to communicate with people, your social isolation, and now they're talking about all these behaviors, and somehow at the age of 18, you graduate into uh, into schizophrenia. You know, because since he was 13, you started giving crazy drugs to the kid who wasn't crazy in the first place, and now you made him crazy by the time he was 18 because he didn't talk and and the and the interesting thing about not talking in autism is a deaf kid will play with other kids by the time they're three or four or five years old. It's not speech, okay, it's communication and and this socialization and communication. So I'm often uh, frustrated when parents are saying that the teachers, you know, the teachers say that the kid is 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 not attending, they're not focusing, they're not listening. It's like, well, he isn't talking. I don't care about all that stuff. He's not talking. Don't you want to make him talk? Um, and and so to me, there's it, it, the, it, the, it starts with the research and the the end of it is that these pediatric residents aren't, I can't even get them interested, uh, for example, to do a chart review in my place. Um, prove that I'm wrong. Prove that I can't increase the chance that a child is going to escape autism, which is what I call it when I see children that are better. They've escaped it. If you're in a car accident and your hand looks like this, and 10 years later your heart hand is fine, nobody ever said, oh, well, you couldn't have been in the car accident. Your hand looks fine. But if I have a kid who's 10 years old and doesn't have any signs or symptoms left, or has a little social problems, a little communication problem, oh, well, he, couldn't, he didn't really have autism. That's what you hear. That's how, how strong the university look at autism is. That if you, if you get better, you couldn't have had it. Dr. Brian Udell, thank you so much for being with us here at Exploring Different Brains, The Autism Doctor. And where can people learn more about you? At theautismdoctor.com or childdev.org, C-H-I-L-D-D-E-V.org, which uh, describes the other services that we provide for people because everybody that presents with signs and symptoms of autism doesn't have it. They deserve a medical workup. 
and the name of the organization is? The Child Development Center of America is my organization. Um, Child Development there. Center of America. Okay. Brian, thank you so much thank for being here. Thank you for the platform. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.